Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. We are starting the show today talking about health care and a lot of people suggesting that they would have liked to have heard or seen some more detail in the speech that was delivered by Health Minister Adrian Dix. This, as Adrian Dix laid out his vision for the future of health care while speaking at the UBCM conference in Whistler. He acknowledged that there is a health care crisis and that this province has been in one since March of 2020. But as for specifics about the future, well, the speech didn't have a whole lot of that. In fact, it was missing a lot of the specifics, and that's what he's being criticized for today. So we're going to talk more about this on the program. And joining me to talk more about this is Merlin Blackwell, the mayor of Clearwater. Merlin, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Jill. I I don't know if you got to hear the whole speech or you were able to get some of the details or lack of details, I suppose, is a better way of putting it. But what are your thoughts on what we're hearing from the health minister? Well, I was actually on the panel. So uh, I spoke after Minister Dix. Um, Gabby Wickstrom spoke uh, right after uh, Minister Dix. And it was myself. I I took eight minutes because, you know, I ramble. Um, But yes, I I did listen to the speech, um, fully understanding what was going on with the blackout, uh, with the the Queen's death on specifics, you know, monetary announcements, I guess. Uh, There were some hints at, I think, what he wanted to announce, which was uh, reforms to the BC Ambulance Service, our further reforms. And then there was discussion about, you know, an alternative model for doctor billing in this province, maybe something uh, more salary or something that took on more of the clinical administration function, or at least paid for it. So there were hints of that. And I also had another meeting this morning with uh, Minister Dix to privately talk about the issues around healthcare in my community. Um, And and that was some of the same things were hinted at, but you know, you wouldn't even in uh, private um, further comment on those issues. Did you get the sense that there are things to be announced and they're just not being announced now or there aren't? Yeah, I would fully expect things to be announced in the in the near future once we get past this morning period for the Queen. And, uh, you know, they may be in early, more in early stages of planning or, or something along those lines too, but I, I, I would fully expect to hear something in the next couple of weeks. Right, because even talking about things like a different way of paying doctors or attracting family doctors, so we've certainly heard that over and over again. And what's being waited for now are, are the specifics on that. For sure, yeah. No, I mean, we had uh, fairly solid conversations about how much of a worldwide crisis this is. Um, the community organization, uh, the BC Rural Mayors uh, Alliance that we're starting to form here, we had uh, a meeting of over 30 people on Monday morning for coffee here, and this is just sort of a grass, grassroots uh, thing that is growing right now. And, and we had all those sort of same conversations about solutions versus, um, uh, you know, complaining about this, but we all recognize that this is a long-term problem. We're just trying to fix the little things. Right. And in your uh, district, in the district of Clearwater, I know we've talked to you in the past about Mm -hmm. uh, the closing of the ER over weekends or or a lack of services because a lack of staff, uh, a number of reasons. How are things going there now? Well, we did a long stretch. I think we did 24 overnight closures in a row. But since then, we've had continuous 24-7 uh, coverage. Uh, a lot of that is due to, you know, a real effort on the part of interior health management to find people to, to break that cycle. Also, we ended the holiday season, so a lot of workers have now rotated back to 
their fall schedule with kids in school and things like that. So that's definitely made it easier. But, you know, speaking after a cabinet minister on the issue at uh, UBCM also attracts attention. So I'm not going to be completely Pollyanna and I'm going to kind of throw that in there as well. Right. Sure. So, uh, you know, I, I think uh, for the other mayors, advocacy is important, but it's also got to be respectful advocacy and being too critical is not helping anything. And I stated that in my mer- remarks yesterday. Right. But I, and I guess there's the balance there, isn't there, of not wanting to be too critical, but also voicing concern and making sure that your voice is heard about the problems. Yeah, I mean, we we as mayors and local elected officials, uh, obviously, we have all our own political beliefs. Um, mine probably aren't what most people think um, <laughs> with the amount of, uh, of speaking I've done on this. But um we have the BC Liberals and the Green Party to to uh, partisanly hold the BC NDP to account. Our communities and the group that we're trying to form here of mayors and elected officials, we are all about working together. We just want to do it. We want proper communication. We want to solve problems in our communities and be a partner in this. It is not about being critical of the healthcare system, the managers, and, and quite frankly, uh, Minister Dix, who I think actually has kept this province going for three incredibly hard years. Um, And I have a lot of respect for the man. I I absolutely do. And I have also a lot of sympathies for him as well. Fair enough. That makes sense for sure. Um, Merlin, I wanted to ask you something, and this was something Von Palmer actually brought up. And I'm sure, I mean, it was early. It was during his regular segment at 6.30 this morning with Simi. But I think what I heard Von say was something along the lines of, in places like Clearwater, with the shortages of ambulance workers and ambulances, there are actually residents who are coming forward and volunteering saying, well, we can get first responder training. Would that help? Yes, yes, absolutely. I, I My moment at the end of my speech where I had to stop, where I was going to tear up and cry was the fact that 11 members of my, my citizenry have stepped forward, many of them out of the volunteer fire department, uh, both men and women, uh, very strong human beings, and they're, they're going to start BC Ambulance training. I talked to Cor- Troy Clifford with uh, the Ambulance Union. He wants to help facilitate that. Um, many partners are coming on to help. And these are what I, this is exactly what I'm talking about. When we finally understood what the shortage was about, because local communication started to happen, I could put that out to the community. The community responded, especially after Ashcroft, especially after Barrier. That broke people. And they realized that if they had the opportunity to step up and be, be part of the solution, they were going to do it. And, and that's where small communities can really help in this situation. Right. And and I can understand that that would be a pretty amazing thing to see people coming forward saying, look, we'll get training or we'll get up to speed so we can do this. I mean, it's yeah. great that people are doing that, but also that's not really how we want the healthcare system to be run, to be to be dependent on, on citizens coming forward and volunteering. Uh, no, this isn't volunteering. Or- this is to actually become EMRs or PCV paramedics over time. They're not stepping up to volunteer. Okay. They're stepping up as basically recruitment in their own communities. This is the perfect idea when we know what the problem is because they already have homes in our communities. They already have family connections in our communities. They're going to stay there once they're trained. This is what we need to do. Uh, I said the same thing uh, as well. We need to, to tailor scholarships for medical to our local citizens. We really need to do that for our students. Let's throw all the effort into things like that because they will return to us. Uh, even if they all don't return to us, 
odds are good that they will spend time back with us because we are family and we all know each other and we all understand when one of us hurts, all of us hurts. Right. No, it's, it sounds like a, a great solution then if people, like you said, are already in the community, get the training and stay in the community. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, and that's a big focus of our of our talks with the minister and with the local health authorities. How can we bring uh, entry level nursing training right to our small towns? Maybe we find you 20 students. We do centralized. People drive 45 minutes for a cup of coffee here. They're going to drive 45 minutes for schooling a couple days a week if they can begin their nurse training here so they don't have to live out somewhere expensive and uh, and pay rent and all those sort of things. If they can stay close to home versus having to go to UBC, either UBC or UNBC, it's going to keep a lot of people in our communities that will stay in our communities trained. All right. And, and what is happening then with uh, the emergency and with closures? I know I, I had seen you posting a bit uh, that, that fingers crossed, like you said, with the vacations yeah. done, that things were getting back to uh, fully staffed and looking that they yeah. could be that way in the foreseeable future. Yeah, no, we're there. I, we're there for now. Um, it is, you know, uh, spit bubblegum and, and duct tape holding it together right now. Um, I, I fully expect that we will have more overnight closures uh, on and off. But we're making traction. We are attracting people. We are we are working on having that that workplace that people want to come to. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, with the with the positivity of the people in our town, I mean, why wouldn't you want to come here, right? <laughs> no, it's a it's a good question. Uh, you look on the website, or if you've been there, people will know how how beautiful and uh, how uh, how much it has to offer. Yeah, and their mayor advocates for their healthcare workers. Uh, that's a good selling point. So we'll 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 stick with that one. <laughs> All right. Well, Merlin, thank you so much as always. Uh, thanks for joining us. Great to talk to you again. Thank you, Jill. Every Wednesday at this time, we check in with Travel Best Bets President Claire Newell. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. Yeah, it's um, been an interesting week in travel. There's lots of travel news going on, but of course the the top story with the passing of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. It stirred a lot of interest in the United Kingdom and London, of course, in particular. Um, And there's been some stats that came out that showed that literally within an hour of news breaking of her passing, searches from the U.S. spiked 49% over the previous day. Globally, they jumped 40%. So lots of people heading there. And um, my best friend was actually in London when she passed. Um, she's not there now. She continued on to, to Europe. Um, it's another story, and I would I, I will talk to you a little bit about that. Um, but um, one of the things she said that uh, it was starting to get very very crowded, and there uh, that people were facing you know, some challenges getting around Um, the underground, mostly operating as normal, but there are some safety measures that are in place. And this will go right through until the actual funeral next Monday. So there's some temporary closures, um, some non-stopping trains having to make alterations um, and some alterations as to how the crowds can both enter and exit. Um, obviously, lots of road closure, so people are asked to avoid actually driving. Buses are even altering their routes, maybe shortening them, not getting right to the heart of certain places. So people are encouraged to walk to the final destination if if that's an option for them. But it's unprecedented demand at the moment. Uh, yeah, and I would I would imagine, like you said, then the the ripple effect of getting around and even finding accommodation might be challenging. 
Yeah, uh, very challenging. I, I, of course, the first to get there were media. And so lots of hotels are filled with that, but also just the people who have been um, around uh, other parts of the UK kind of now descending on London and, and taking the, the accommodation. It's only going to get, I think, tougher until the day of the funeral. All right. So any advice for people then that, well, I, I would imagine that there's not a lot of people who are still thinking about going that haven't actually booked or looked into it. Yeah, there is, there's still some space from Canada if people are interested in going. The, the sooner, the better, obviously, the, the closer in, the more expensive it's going to be. I think a lot of people are kind of like me, going to be watching it on television rather than getting there um, for the glimpse. But if you are going, don't expect it to be cheap and certainly don't expect um, you, I mean, just expect heavy volume, congestion and things changing and uh, security levels changing, especially with so many people and um, senior positions from around the world coming in to, to, to pay their respects. All right. That is uh, good advice uh, for anybody uh, that's uh, wondering about that or, or doing that. Uh, let's yeah. see, what else are we talking about? Some changes when it comes to passports? Yeah. So um, just last week, Canada had added four additional service centers where people can apply or pick up their passport. None of them are here in BC. Um, Lethbridge, Alberta would be the closest, but they've got one in Kingston, Ontario, Sherbrooke, Quebec, Sudbury, Ontario. But this basically just, it, it relieves pressure to the whole system. And that's why I wanted to mention it because right now the average call time, it's really improved. Way back in its peak in April, it was 108 minutes. Now it's 28 minutes, and that's if you're actually phoning. And since April 1st, I thought this was quite a staggering number. Service Canada has issued over 900, 912,000 passports. Hmm. So um, they're getting through it. It's easing. You know, everything in the travel industry is starting to ease. It's not perfect yet by any means, Joe, but it, it's starting to improve. Before we talk about any more travel news, one of the things I just wanted to, to mention, if I'm sounding a little bit scattered or don't have as much pep in my voice, um, my my best friend actually was in an accident while she was away Oh no! and uh, is in the hospital. Uh, just a reminder to everybody, please make sure if you're traveling, I always have said this, but make sure that you have travel insurance because you never, never know what could happen. So just a, oh. a, 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 just a reminder, I, I never want people to overpay, you know, check your work policies, your credit card policies, but always travel with insurance. It's for the unexpected. Yeah, you know? exactly. Anyway. You never plan on that kind of thing. Well, I hope she's okay. No. Yeah, she may need to be there. May, two surgeries for sure, maybe a third. And she's, yeah, she's in a really rough shape. So yeah. thank you though. But yeah, she'll, she'll, she'll get through it. Yes. Yes, she will. But that's a good, uh, unfortunate that, uh, that uh, we're reminding people, but you're right. Always a good reminder. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, I know that we didn't talk about this last week, but WestJet updated their uniforms, and I think this is a, a great story. Um, they, their uniforms are going genderless and body inclusive, so every size in the range. So it allows their staff to pick the uniform that they feel is kind of most authentic to them, but also the most comfortable. Um, their redesigned name tags also allow for um, space for pronouns to promote just greater inclusivity for everyone in their world. Um, and then their new uniforms, in addition to that, they've also updated their tattoo policy. So uh, you people can actually showcase visible tattoos and celebrate that. Mm -hmm. 
while they're wearing their uniform and representing the airline, and that was not the case previously. So some, some big updates for WestJet there. What a difference. I remember a friend of mine who was a flight attendant, and this wasn't that long ago, and she was talking about how not only did you have to wear black heels, they had to be black patent heels. And, of course, women like, had to wear kidding? the skirts. Oh, yeah. She said that <sighs> whenever she and other flight attendants would find black patent heels, they would buy a few pairs of them because you never knew. And they couldn't be the, the flat black. They had to be. And I, I, that story reminded me of that because I thought, you know, that was probably 30 years ago, but still, in the grand scheme of things, not a, a huge amount of time to make some positive changes. Yeah, really <laughs> positive changes, I think, as well. I can't even imagine wearing heels on a plane anymore. Yeah. Like, that's just a no-go. <laughs> yeah, no um, thanks. An- another thing I wanted to mention, and I know that I, we had mentioned this way back, um, someone that I know is the executive producer, he's actually the, the president of G Adventures, Bruce Poontip, cool guy, but he produced a really cool video, a very eye-opening documentary called The Last Tourist. And it's been, you can watch it on Air Canada flights even now, but it just became available for streaming on Crave in Canada. So if you have Crave, The Last Tourist is a really good 90 minutes just to give you some insights on just tackling the the topics like over-tourism, community exploitation, animal abuse, um, and but also different types of parts of the industry and just talking about our ability as individuals to actually make a difference when we travel. So I, I, I found it really eye-opening. So that's out on Crave now oh, here in Canada. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're also looking a bit at uh, some places that have dropped the any COVID-related uh, travel restrictions or testing yeah. requirements. So the Caribbean is starting to really uh, remove their travel restrictions. Antigua and Barbuda lifted all of their COVID-19 restrictions at the end of August, August 30th, and then effective September 5th, St. Lucia, which is actually one of the more popular Caribbean destinations from Vancouver. People go over Toronto and they seem to really like St. Lucia, and they've removed all of their COVID testing and vaccination requirements for entry. So, you know, every day I come into the office and I start to hear that things are, are dropping. Um, one of the other things that I saw that was really positive as far as travel is concerned is the government officials in Mexico announced that over 12 million tourists have arrived uh, on commercial airlines in the first seven months of 2022. And that's a 70, over 70% increase compared to the same period last year. And um, the vast majority, like 9.4 million of that 12 million were from U.S., Canada, as well as Colombia, which kind of surprised me. Hmm. Um, but it's a 10.7% increase compared to pre-pandemic levels. So it's in high demand <laughs> because 2019 was a very busy year for Mexico. So lots of people obviously looking at that as a destination. I can actually tell because when I look at the space and I look at the pricing, um, not a lot of space over those popular dates, you know, long weekends and holidays, but also the prices, they're just so hard to get a deal under $1,000 these days. Yeah, a lot of pent up demand. Uh, looks like as well, you, you've made a mention of um, the European destinations also seeing really big record numbers. Yeah, a lot of European destinations reported record numbers of inbound travelers this summer. I don't think it surprises anybody. I mean, in July and August, Turkey, so Istanbul, had uh, over 9% increase to pre-pandemic levels. Athens, up over 2% over 2019 numbers. But to be over 2019 numbers is is huge. And then um, the other places that were also popular, Reykjavik, Iceland, Porto in uh, Portugal, and Malaga in Spain, they were all just a little bit shy, about 8% shy of their 2019 numbers. So 
it, they had a very, very good summer. I can only imagine what it's going to be like for next year because we're already seeing people and a lot of people booking for next year. Whether it's Alaska cruises or Europe or the hotspots, that's what we're seeing already, people booking. All right. And on that note, you've got some deals for us today. Yeah. So as I say, just finding the pockets is proving to be harder than it's been in all my 30 years in this business. But Honolulu, um, I found a deal in January, which is often a popular time right after the holidays. So January and February are the busiest months in Hawaii. But between the 6th of January and the 31st, airfare and seven nights hotel, $8.99, taxes of four seventeen. I did find a five-star all-inclusive to Mexico. It's to Mazatlan. And just, I'm trying to get it under that $1,000 mark. I mean, and then taxes added. But November the 11th through until December 9th, I found air and seven nights in a five-star beachfront all-inclusive, 1055 So pretty close to that 1000 that I'm trying to, to break. Um, and taxes of 490 And then I have to say this bucket list uh, trip. Um, it's to Israel and Egypt. It's a cruise. It actually sails round trip from Cyprus. I thought it was an unbelievable deal for these bucket list destinations. May 21st. And I love that time period, Jill, because it's, you know, the crowds aren't there yet. It's still nice and warm, but it's not that scorching heat of July and August. So it's a seven night cruise with a $50 US onboard credit, $899, hmm. taxes of $197. And this actually has an overnight in Jerusalem so that you can do two full days of touring if that's on your bucket list. Um, and then of course, in ports in Egypt, as well as Haifa. All right, so what a deal indeed. Uh, Claire, we'll leave it there for today, but as always, great to chat and we will chat with you again soon. Thanks again, I'll chat with you next week. Well, we know that schools in this province will be some of the places that are closed, that will be closed on Monday for the day of mourning to mark the death of Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, schools, many other places where they are run by employees of public sector unions, things like post-secondary institutions as well. Most crown corporations will be closed. And the province also, in the announcement yesterday, encouraged private sector employers to find a way to recognize or reflect on the day in a way that is appropriate for employees. So what's going to be happening at courthouses on Monday? Well, Sarah Lehman joins us now, lawyer and founder of the Sarah Lehman Law Group. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, I understand as well why you were asking questions about this, and there has now been a notice that's been put out to lawyers in BC about the court closure. So what do you know? What will things look like on Monday? Yes, we're very thankful to have some direction about this, although it is on very short notice. Um, but all of the courts will be closed in BC on Monday. And at this point, matters that were scheduled to proceed on those dates are being essentially unilaterally adjourned over to the next available date, generally speaking. What does that mean for something, though, that maybe has been working its way through the courts or somebody that's been waiting for the date and their date happened to be Monday? Well, it means delay, quite frankly. Uh, hopefully, things will be able to be rescheduled in relatively short order, but there are people who have had, say, trial dates set for months or in some cases even years who have been waiting and will now see an additional delay, which can be very frustrating. 
And I guess we understand why this is happening, and certainly the court system would fall under the, the public service and being shut down for the day. But do, do you see this as well as, or in addition to delays, um, could this put cases in jeopardy? Well, I mean, for some of them, it could theoretically have that potential. Um, there are things in criminal law, for instance, uh, with respect to delay um, procedure, and if things are delayed uh, at a particular length, then it could result in a case being dismissed. Now, I'm hoping that that won't happen here and that things that will be adjourned on Monday will be uh, dealt with in, in relatively short order to avoid that kind of accumulation of delay. Because I would imagine, too, and, and not as though we could plan something like this. I mean, it's a funeral. It's something that comes by as a surprise, and that makes sense. But it would be much different than court systems or the courtrooms, courthouses, having to deal with a statutory holiday or knowing that there's going to be a day during the week that they're shut down. Yeah, this has come up so quickly, right? I mean, yesterday we were all looking for direction as to whether or not courts would even be closed or opened or what was going on. So our government has worked um, in quite short order to make sure that arrangements have been made for this holiday to take place. Uh, We certainly couldn't have foreseen this. And so, you know, there is um, some um, positive aspect here in that we were able to adapt and respond accordingly although I do understand it to be a difficult situation for some people. Right, because now what do you have to do or what will uh, you and and other lawyers as well, if you had something scheduled for Monday, uh, making sure that your client or people know that that's not going ahead? Yes, well, in fact, I did have something scheduled for Monday out of town. And so I've had to scramble somewhat myself in order to make different arrangements now for the matter to be heard on a different date. And so did my client. Um, it just is what it is. It's very unfortunate. But most people, I find, are quite understanding about it because it is out of our hands. Right. But you raise an interesting point there as well, too. I think we tend to think that court matters happen in our communities or for the most part, people don't have to travel out of town for them. But there would be people who had flights booked or had travel plans booked to go to their courthouse on Monday. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I represent clients all over this province and also in other provinces. Um, So there are significant arrangements that need to be put into place, not just travel arrangements, but, you know, people who have to attend court can sometimes also imagine that they would have to make childcare arrangements, for instance, or take a day off work. And so, um, you know, here we have the holiday. So thankfully, they won't have to worry about work. Uh, hopefully, but there are complicating factors and things that people have to keep in mind when we're thinking about going to court. Right. And even with the issue of taking the day off work, I mean, because it's such a bit of a patchwork as far as who knows they're going to have it off work right away or who who was told right away as far as public sector sector workers, uh, but others that are kind of in this gray area of, of employers being advised to try and give workers time off to mourn and time to watch the funeral if they choose to or listen to it. Uh, there's no guarantee that somebody who took the day off would fall into that and would still have the day off. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's just such a lack of clarity around people who aren't um, regulated uh, government employees. And so I do think that this is going to require flexibility and people being able to adapt quickly. And sometimes that's just not always the case. We need to have our plans in place uh, for a reason, sometimes weeks, months or even years in advance.
I would imagine for you as well, and not that every day is spent in court all day, but this would also be the difference in a private lawyer as opposed to somebody who works in the court system where that system will be closed on Monday. I guess, does that leave it up to you then that you have to decide whether you're going to take the day off or you're going to work on Monday? Yes, it does. I mean, I'm not a government employed lawyer. And so I have my own law practice of my own employees. And so we have to have a discussion about that and what we're going to do in terms of Monday morning. Um, So I think that everyone is approaching this as best they can. uh, But it is definitely um, a challenge for many people. And I can certainly see that in a number of different ways in my own practice. Right. And even looking at that, uh, and again, I would imagine there could be work, even with the courts shut down, there could be work that you could be doing that employees in your office could be doing on Monday. And and now you're left again with that decision. Do we do this work or are you expected to give people the day off? Sure. I mean, there's always work to be done. (laughs) But at the same time, you know, we have to consider uh, what's appropriate um, and what we should do as responsible employers. So that's just another aspect that I myself am struggling with. Um, as a small business owner, as well as being a lawyer. And Sarah, going back to the the adjournment, so everything that was set to be in court on Monday, it, it will be adjourned, like you said, and put forward to the next possible date. How big of a task is that? I imagine it's quite a large task. I mean, we have courthouses in most communities throughout this province, um, and court dates, at least speaking in criminal court uh, context, Uh, are often set for weeks, months, years in advance, depending on what the nature of that date is. Um, I know in Supreme Court for Civil Matters, trial dates are often set months or years down the road. And so this is a huge task, having to reshuffle everything. Thankfully, it is just one day, and we can plan for it in the future. But still, it is something that is going to be, I imagine, a huge burden in terms of reorganizing the court system. And will it mean as well that there are people who maybe have been arrested for something or who are being held in court that had their next appearance on Monday? Is it possible that that would just go over to Tuesday or we're going to see people then that are going to be held in custody longer than maybe they would have uh, if they'd had their day, their, their appearance on Monday? Those people should be dealt with in a very expedient manner. Um, We still have charter rights, and of course people have the right to be brought before a justice of the peace or a judge in a timely manner. And so I don't think that we're going to be discounting that in any way. Um, So I expect that those would be given priority and dealt with very quickly. All right, Uh, Sarah, interesting perspective looking at it uh, from that point of view uh, and what's going to be happening with the court system on Monday and rescheduling uh, everything as we move forward. Thank you so much for joining us and for your time today. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's check in now with Ben O'Hara Byrne. He is the host of A Little More Conversation with Ben O'Hara Byrne here on CKNW. He is joining us live from London, England. Thank you so much for taking some time. Yeah, thanks, Jill. Uh, I know you've had a very busy day with what's happening where you are, so uh, give us a bit of a rundown. What's been happening there? Well, I mean, it, it began really with uh, this morning with just the, the sheer number of people that were waiting alongside the route for the procession, right? That was the anticipated. Uh, that's really what many people uh, were eager to see today. So that was uh, the procession by which the Queen's coffin was taken on a gun carriage, uh, horse-drawn, from Buckingham Palace, uh, through Horse Guards Parade, and then down to the Houses of Parliament, to Westminster Hall, where she'll, where she'll lie in state. It's not a very long journey, 
but it was done slowly. Um, all the members of the royal family followed behind on foot, including the king, his siblings, princes William and Harry. Um, so lots of people were there to see that. And uh, it was interesting just to watch because everybody wants to talk about why they're there. I, I, I was surprised. It's not as it's respectfully quiet when, you know, when, when the procession went past, everyone stopped talking. But other than that, people have been very chatty about, you know, the memories of the Queen, why they're there, you know, what she meant to them, why, what life will be like without her. Um, so it's been interesting because there's a certain sense of a celebration of life that's happening. It's not just sort of tears and, and, and grief. There's also this idea that she meant something important. One woman I spoke to today compared it to, you know, a much, the wake for a much-loved grandmother. You just want to talk. You need to, you need to be able to, to talk it out. And we're sort of feeling that in those crowds today. So that was the first big event of the day. And now she's lying in state. So obviously there's a long lineup even this morning um, to be amongst those who could go do that. So I spoke to some people there in that queue as well, including a Canadian who'd been there since dawn, explaining growing up in Canada what the Queen meant to her. You know, maybe not as much. She didn't call herself a monarchist, but that being over here reminded her it was sort of a link between home and her new home and how important it was to be there to pay her respects. I would imagine you're meeting people or seeing people that have traveled that you mentioned, that woman from Canada, that have come great distances to stand for hours and to do that. Yeah, I did meet one couple who, who had actually flown here on Friday. Um, you know, the Queen passed away Thursday night. At least word came out here on Thursday in Canada on Thursday morning. On Friday, they got on a plane and flew over here just to be here. And so they were there last night when the coffin returned from Scotland. It came along a route that took it right past and down into Buckingham Palace. That was also packed with people. And then again today for the procession. And then they were waiting in line um, to, be, to, to go pay their respects as she lay in state. And, you know, they were, weren't too, too far from the front. They were a ways, but not too, too far. It's, it's about, I think it's almost four kilometers long now at this hour. Um, but I asked them, well, how long are you going to wait? And Tracy would, said, well, she served us for 70 years, so we'll wait for as long as it takes. Hmm, that's, a, <laughs> that's, that's yeah. a nice way of looking at it, for sure. Mm-hmm. And then what do we expect as far as now that the, the Queen begins lying in state? What else is happening as far as preparations and uh, as we get closer to the day of the funeral? Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to see a quieting down of the events because she passed away in Scotland. There were a lot of things that happened uh, that weren't part of what would be called the original plans for her funeral. So there was what well, we saw that, you know, the... the um, the cortege on the Royal Mile in Edinburgh, uh, the service at St. Giles in Edinburgh, where people were also had also come to pay their respects. I think really this next few days is going to be about, you know, London and, you know, the United Kingdom paying their respects to the Queen as she lies in state. At the same time, there will be some moments uh, during that that I think are going to be incredibly poignant. We know that um, her children stood vigil, called the vigil of the princes. They stood vigil at St. Giles in Edinburgh. They're going to do so again here. Um, that's going to be a, a very poignant moment, I think. Princess Anne, of course, was the first woman to ever do this. Of course, back when uh, when her grandfather passed away, women didn't, weren't allowed to do that in the royal family. So uh, we're going to see that again here, and that's going to be, I think, something really special. And I and just the planning for the funeral, I think that's really what's going to start to be talked about more and more, planning for the arrival of all these dignitaries over the weekend, uh, how they're going to manage it, what the order is going to be for the funeral, more details. We haven't really found those out yet. Um, so I imagine, you know, for the next few days, we're really going to be focused on this tribute to the Queen, those who are paying their respects as she lays in state. And then it's going to be very much about the funeral and, and just the, the logistics around it 
Um, and also, you know, just what the funeral is going to be like. I know, for instance, already I found out late tonight that uh, members of the of the um, of the musical ride are going to take part in the in the cortege. She was a huge fan of the RCMP's musical ride, mm-hmm. so they're coming to take part in it. And there'll be other Canadian, you know, more Canadian representation there as well. Um, so I think there'll be some focus on that too, just how what what role we're playing as a country uh, in this uh, in this what will be a, an unprecedented moment for for most of us. We've never seen a funeral like this before. No, and I know you mentioned it earlier, uh, kind of not comparing it, but people will remember the funeral for Diana and and very very different, but also a, a big event and a big a, a big ceremony that brings people together. Yeah, it was funny because it's one of those things when you come over here, when I worked here as a correspondent, you know, people in London didn't talk about Diana a lot. You know, I think the rest of us did too, did, but it wasn't a conversation you often had here in London until today when so many people that I bumped into sort of, I think it's just the magnitude of what's happening, the floral tributes everywhere, the notes, um, you know, people really feeling the need to be there. Uh, when these events such as the, the, the procession from Buckingham Palace to Windsor Hall happened, just the sense that you need to be there to show that you're there, to say goodbye. But the big difference was, was the grief. One woman said, you know, people were just wailing. The tears and the grief at Diana's funeral was palpable. And now it's, it, it's you know, there was a shock when she passed away. It was sudden. But there is this understanding that, that it was going to happen. And this is much more about sort of, as I was mentioning earlier, celebrating a life, mm-hmm. um, as well as the sorrow, but really one of more about gratitude, for instance, than grief uh, than 25 years ago. All right. Ben O'Hara-Byrne, thank you so much for this. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks again so much. Yeah, thanks, Joe, for making the time.